Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Norwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week we are going to be discussing Ron Edwards' game, Sorcerer. As you can probably hear, we all have colds at the moment. This is Matt's fault, so please do forgive our croaky vocal cords at the moment. Yeah, yeah, Nurgle for Dargan. Yes, Scott has just made us a round of lem sips, one each. Living the high life. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> whoop, whoop. And in other news, what's been going on, Scott? You've been recording with uh, How We Roll? Yeah, I did a recording uh, oh, about six weeks ago of the first part of Blackwater Creek with them, and we wrapped it up this week. Uh, so I think there's probably going to be eight episodes total, each one about 45 minutes. I'll, I will link to to the site from the show notes when these episodes start coming out. I know Joe has finished editing the first four, so it might not be that long. Cool. That's the scenario that comes with the Call of Cthulhu Keeper's Screen pack uh, that you wrote, Scott. It's a great yes. scenario. Uh, very much enjoyed playing it and running it. And not long now, at the beginning of December, comes Dragon Meat, the annual one-day event down in London that we go to. How the hell has that come around again so quickly? Time. Time, Scott. The inevitable, unstoppable beating of that clock. I, I, I swear I'm still 25, really. <laughs> Plus VAT. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, so if any of you are going to be visiting Dragon Meat in London, we would love to meet with you there. I don't think we're down to do any official events this year. We've been very, very badly organised. Uh, but we will be wandering the halls like lost souls. I think Matt's going to run a game or two. Mm. Uh, so please find us, talk to us, um, and and we will probably talk back. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. This week, our word is... Demon. It's a noun. One, in ancient Greek belief. A divinity or supernatural being of a nature between gods and humans. Two, archaic spelling of demon. There's an extra A that's gone walkabout there. Yeah, so it's worth pointing out at this stage, when we say demon here, we're talking about the spelling D-A-E-M-O-N, which does technically have a subtly different, well, actually not even that subtly different, uh, but a different meaning than the word demon, D-E-M-O-N, that we might more commonly see. So what's the difference, Scott? Well... As Matt said in the first place, it's it refers to maybe a sort of spirit, a spirit of intelligence or a nature spirit, something that exists between the human and the divine world. In Greek mythology, it's not necessarily evil. You do have evil spirits, but they are referred to as cacodemons. A demon is pretty neutral, really. You know, I see the word cacodemon and I keep thinking of seeing something with wings and a tail carrying a large jug of cocoa. <laughs> spirits of a good night's sleep i could do with one of them that's just an angel isn't it no they don't have faces they just have horns oh. well, scott haven't we done this word before 
Well, no. Uh, yes and no. No. I, I'll say no. So we've Which are you going for, Dord? Which advance, is it? Any advance on yes? Any advance on yes? Go on. I, I will say no, because technically we did demoniacal. So demon is obviously the root of demoniacal, uh, and, and Lovecraft used all sorts of variations of that, even cacodemoniacal, because, well, Lovecraft. Demon is a bit more commonly used in, in his work. We see it, oh gosh, 54 times in his work as demon or demons. But then I suppose he uses it another 83 times in his derived form as, as demonic or de- demoniacal or uh, demoniac. And yeah, it's obviously one of his favourite words. Turns up in relation to one of my favourites as well a lot of the time. Uh, that would be Mr. Azathoth. Yes, indeed. Good old demon sultan. I think the fact that it refers to something that is between human and the divine meshes quite nicely with Lovecraft's work, because we have these entities in there that people refer to as gods, see as being gods, but are they really gods? Yes, the idea that you can refer to these things as demons is quite a nice categorisation. But also, interestingly, Lovecraft uses the word demon with an A the way that the rest of us would probably use demon, just D-E-M-O-N, uh, in normal occurrence. I think this is much like the way he uses the spelling of show, of S-H-E-W, in his, his work, that is his love of the, the archaic spellings of things. Uh, the fact that, you know, as an American writer in the early 20th century, he tended to use British spellings for everything, uh, just as an aesthetic. Mm. So let's take a look at how Lovecraft used the word demon in his writings. From the Hound It was a secret room, far, far underground, where huge winged demons, carven of basalt and onyx, vomited from wide grinning mouths, weird green and orange light. And hidden pneumatic pipes ruffled into kaleidoscopic dances of death, the lines of red charnel things, hand in hand woven in voluminous black hangings. And from the dream quest of unknown Kadath. For madness and the void's wild vengeance are Neartheletep's only gifts to the presumptuous. And frantic though the rider strove to turn his disgusting steed, that leering, tittering shantak coursed on impetuous and relentless, flapping its great slippery wings in malignant joy and headed for those unhallowed pits with a no dream's reach. That last amorphous blight of nethermost confusion where bubbles and blasphemes at infinity's centre the mindless demon sultan Azathoth, whose name no lips dare speak aloud. And from the story... From beyond. I have seen beyond the bounds of infinity and drawn down demons from the stars. I have harnessed the shadows that stride from world to world to sow death and madness. Space belongs to me. Do you hear? And now, moving on to our main topic Sorcerer. The tagline of this game is an intense RPG. And yeah, the theme of it really fits with that. The theme of the game is how far will you go to get what you want? And this is, I I think, a fairly unusual thing in RPGs. I mean, sure, RPGs are about um, all sorts of things. And classic Dungeons and Dragons is about accumulating wealth and power and levels. But with this, 
I don't know, there's something more naked and transgressive about it. And I think we'll, we'll try to drill into what precisely we mean about that. Player characters are sorcerers, hence the name of the game, really. Uh, people who go against conventional morality and summon demons in pursuit of power. Sorcerers and demons are meant to be rare, unwholesome things. Yeah, and this is something that I've found a lot of players struggle with, even from the outset. So your character in this, the sorcerer, is someone who is so desperate for power, for whatever reason. It may be for noble reasons, but whatever it is, they want power. And they are willing to go against all that is right in the world. They are willing to gamble their very humanity and deal with demons, draw demons perhaps even into their own bodies. This is... Something that, that I, I've seen players really struggle with. So when I've run this game, I've, I've started out telling players, all right, your character has decided to do this. You know, they, they are a, an active force in the world. They have gone out, they've got this demon, they've bound it to themselves. They have done something really transgressive in order to do it. So give me your character concepts. Okay, well, I was wandering around, stumbled into a cave, and when I woke up, I had a demon bound in me. No. Yeah, I woke up, I had a strange tattoo. No. I just found this weird item in my uncle's old possessions. No. None of these things are sorcerers. We sat there on this chair, and I accidentally sat down on it, and... Oh, well, anyway. So... <laughs> yeah, but, I was vacuuming in the nude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, Scott, as, like, the self-styled warlock of New Bradwell. <laughs> it's not a difficult stretch for you, but I think perhaps for quite a lot of people, it's not an easy fit for some people. I think as we play a role-playing character, we tend to portray a role-playing character. It's not necessarily how we are, but it's something that some aspect of ourselves can sort of, you know, we can reflect it in the character. Whereas what you've just described, it's not necessarily an easy fit for everybody to sort of think oh how would i be if i had found a demon and you know it's it's quite an alien idea it is but i think you've got to buy into the concept of a game when you play it we chatted a bit about this over lunch before recording and the point i i suppose i tried to make to paul was let's say that you're running your first ever game of call of cthulhu and you pitch to the players and say right okay we're playing this game of lovecraftian horror it's set in the 1920s uh you're playing um, fairly archetypal characters people like antiquarians and librarians and professors and writers and private detectives and your group is used to playing D&D. And so, you know, the first player says, okay, you know, my character concept, I'm going to roll up a first-level fighter. And it's sort of, sort of no, no, no. I, you know, I know this is what you're used to playing, but we're playing a different kind of game now. Okay, well, how about if I roll up a ranger instead? And yeah, I'm, that's not really my point. You're, you're saying they're taking something from another game and trying to impose it. I'm saying that they're just having trouble getting their head around what it is you actually want. Um, that that thing of taking control of a demon and being driven to seek power at any cost. It's just, I think, communicating that to somebody, unless you've you've really bought into what that's about, I think you're overlooking the fact that that's not that easy a concept for some people to grasp. Well, I, I think it's also the fact that people who've played a lot of other role-playing games have been trained that this isn't the kind of character they play. Let's say, for example, you know, as a counterpoint, you're playing Mage. 
certainly, you, know, you may have to correct me with um, Ascension, but with Mage the Awakening, you discover that you are a mage. This this isn't something you've gone out and sought. This is something that's happened to you, or is something that that has awakened within you that you weren't aware of before. Yeah, they're both similar in that respect. They just approach it in different ways. But it's ultimately that you are a normal person. Boom! You're a mage. So it's a completely passive thing. This mm. isn't something you've gone out and sought for yourself. This is something that has happened to you. You know, with, with vampire, you're a normal person who was bitten by a vampire. With werewolf, you know, you've discovered this thing within your bloodline. You've, you've changed for the first time and you've become something other than, than human. In none of these cases, is it something that you've gone out and sought? Well, I think this is the distinction that I'd agree with you on, Scott, is that in a lot of role-playing games, you just create a character and they're a fairly blank slate and then the GM presents the story and you're fairly passive, but then you interact with the story. With this game, it's very much set up that you are a very active in the role of player and your character has a very strong goals from, or not necessarily strong goals, but strong kind of drivers from the outset. Mm. And I think that is the very different mindset that this game requires. Yeah. I've struggled with this aspect of the game more than anything else. I mean, I've run it at conventions, I've run it as, as campaigns at the club, and in every game there is at least one player, and usually a number, who will really bang their heads up against this and just not get it. So this game was first self-published by Ron Edwards in 1996 under the imprint Adept Press. He... Issued it, I think, as a, a PDF, right? Yeah, certainly as an electronic document. And asked if anybody uh, wanted to send him $5 for it, if they enjoyed it. That's what he asked. Well, I think he was even sending printouts of it to people in the post and asking for contributions there. It started out as a very sort of word-of-mouth thing uh, before there was anything like a published book. And my understanding of it is that he, he had originally decided to try to pitch this to a publishing company. But then, having seen the kind of compromises that he'd have to make in terms of losing creative control over it, decided that, uh, inspired by the experience of Dave Sim, the publisher and creator of uh, Cerebus the Aardvark, very, very influential comic that he was going to try doing the same thing for role-playing games and and really ended up, I, I think, creating this movement effectively as a result. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Edwards is also involved quite heavily in the creation of a website or um, online community that I know you've referenced a few times, Scott, The Forge. Yeah, so this really went hand-in-hand hand with the creation and publication of Sorcerer and the self-publishing movement that came out uh, of the whole experience. So The Forge, I think um, it predated Edwards slightly, or at least he, he wasn't the original creator of it. I think Ed Healy created it in the first place. The Forge was this, this online community that became about creator-owned games. These people who were trying to create these new, small, interesting games and publish them themselves and keep all the rights to them. Yeah, the Forge website, I mean, it came, became rather controversial, I think, in some circles because it seemed to be putting forth a manifesto for what role-playing should be about. And quite a few people took umbrage at this. But it, I think really at the heart of it, it was a discussion about uh, role-playing. And the reading the Sorcerer book last night, it really kind of presents itself, you know, in the introduction, in some of the supplementary appendices about does system matter presents almost this is what role-playing is about this is you know how i think it should be done 
Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure that that's the case. Um, I, I think it's presenting a manifesto for a style of role playing, for mm. for uh, you know, a style of game that you know, perhaps Ron Edwards didn't think that he'd seen or seen enough of, that he wanted to try to foster. I don't think at any point he he sort of said this is the one true game, this is the one true style. So Sorcerer as a rulebook was reinvigorated with a Kickstarter campaign in 2013, which uh, Scott has uh, just shown me, and it's basically the the old edition on on one side of the page, and on the right facing page, some annotations. Um, yeah. So about playtesting, about development, and about usages of the game. I must admit, one massive improvement from the books is, I would have liked to see them in hardcover, but the artwork on the front cover of the two paperback editions, yeah, the front cover artwork's pretty damn good. The dice mechanics of Sorcerer are attributed as having influenced Cold City, Hot War, Pandemonio, and a bunch of other games ever since. I know I've spoken to Malcolm Craig about this before, and I mean he's quite honest about the fact that when it came to the core mechanics for uh, Cold City, the first one of the games in, in those lines that he put out, uh, that he just basically lifted the dice mechanic out of Sorcerer, lifted something along the lines of the three main stats in there, but then turned it into something a bit more streamlined. And I think in a lot of ways, Hot War in particular, mechanically is pretty much the game that Sorcerer should have been. Hmm. If I had the time and the energy to do so, I'd personally love to sit down and revise Sorcerer and change the resolution mechanics in it, fold in the uh, the Hot War resolution mechanics, but then keep the other stuff and still somehow make it all work. But... That's not as simple as it should be. One other thing that the game has uh, been reported to inspire was uh, Chris Kubasik's The Booth at the End, a fantastic web series that I pretty much one of the first things I think I can ever say I binge-watched because <laughs> it was just that damn good. But yeah, that was an amazing show. Mm. Yeah, the basic premise of it is that there is this guy who sits at the booth at the end in this cafe and that people go up to him, they, they know of his reputation and they sit down and they make bargains with him to try to sort out problems in their life or get things that they want. And in return, he asks something of them. It might seem to be innocuous, it might seem to be something really horrible, but in order to get what they want, they have to do what he wants. And it is, yeah, just basically about the kind of Faustian bargains that lie at the heart of Sorcerer. And Cubasic uh, is, is a huge fan of Sorcerer, so much so that he actually started writing a book called Play Sorcerer, which was supposed to be a guide to how to get the best out of it. It, it was actually an early crowdfunded project uh, before the days of Kickstarter, but it happened at the same time as his screenwriting career and the booth at the end started taking off. And so he ended up having to drop the project and refund everyone's money. But he did write about half of the book and it is available free of charge up on the web. So if you are interested in Sorcerer, then it's, it's worth checking out. And I shall endeavour to remember to put a link in the show notes. And now we take a look at what is a Sorcerer. So in the game, Sorcerers are defined by three stats. There's Stamina, which is basically all the physical characteristics. There's Will, which is the, the mental characteristics. And there's Law, which is arcane learnings about sorcery and it's a very simple character sheet that we're presented with and it includes a few other stats alongside those main three 
Yeah, as well as those stats, I mean, for a start, you have descriptors, which say a little bit about what that stat does. So you could have a descriptor for stamina of something like uh, combat trained. There's also humanity, one thing that I find rapidly erodes whenever I play this game. Um, how human, defined differently for each game this is, a sorcerer still is. And the sorcerer becomes an NPC if this ever hits zero. And one thing that it's probably worth saying about this, because there is, for example, a humanity stat in, say, uh, Vampire, mm-hmm. is this is subtly different in that there is no expectation that a sorcerer with a humanity of one and a sorcerer with a humanity of nine will be played any differently. It, it doesn't prescribe behaviour in any way. It is just that reminder that if you go too far, your character will be destroyed by it. Well, it does say from the start, how far do you want to go? Usually until that stat hits zero. <laughs> I, th- I think that's you, Matt. Huh. Resemble that remark. Other traits include uh, a cover, which describes what the sorcerer does in the mundane world. So just their everyday appearance, if you like, well, to the world. Well, job and what they do. Yeah. So, so it could be something like private eye. So you could end up rolling cover if you're doing things that a private eye would do. Then you have price. Price is another one that sometimes players struggle with. So the idea of this is that your character has paid some kind of price for being a sorcerer. And this could be some kind of physical scarring or disability. Maybe they've had to cut out an eye at some stage. Uh, Maybe it's more psychological. Maybe they've been so affected by this that they suffer in social situations and you'll find it difficult interacting with people they haven't interacted with before. What this means is there are certain situations under which they will suffer a penalty. They'll lose one die from their dice pool. Next is Telltale, uh, some physical or behavioural trait that indicates to those in the know that the sorcerer is a sorcerer. It's a bit like a mechanical uh, secret uh, Masonic shaking ha- uh, shake of hands, really, isn't it? Pretty much, and, and both demons and sorcerers have these telltales. So there are ways whereby, if you're playing a sorcerer and you suspect an NPC might be a sorcerer, you, you can make an appropriate role and see whether you can pick up on their telltale. And this could be something blatant, like the fact that you know one of their pupils is shaped like a star. It could be something more subtle, like a tattoo that you wouldn't normally see, but if you ever did, would obviously have occult significance. And the last thing, perhaps most important in this game, is the thing called the kicker. Now, this is something the player comes up with, an event or story element that drives their character's story into action in the game. And once this is resolved, that's quite a major sort of story milestone, if you like. Oh, yeah. And, the, and that, that resolution of the kicker signals almost like leveling up could be the end of the character or it could be a sort of transformation for the character either minor or major so a couple of examples of kickers from the book include shockers today began like any other until you pulled aside the shower curtain to see the skinned body of your next door neighbor hanging from the shower head a mysterious one a friend on the police force tells you that the scenes of each of the brutal crimes recently perpetrated in your neighbourhood have been signed with your mother's maiden name. And the purpose of having the players author these kickers is that the player should then be engaged with wanting to work out what the hell is going on. You are, as a player, then creating a mystery or a hook or something like that that you are handing to the GM. The GM works out what it all means. So, I mean, taking that first example of the bloody body hanging in the the shower, 
you as a player don't know who put that there, whether it's a warning, an offering, whether perhaps it's something that you yourself did in your sleep and don't remember. Whatever it is, it's a problem that you really want to deal with as a player. Well, you should want to deal with it because you came up with it. But then the GM is tasked with making that interesting. So as GM then, Scott, I've got four players, say, and each of them comes up with something pretty random like that. Would you advise me to have some sort of scenario in mind to begin with and then see how I can integrate those kickers into it? Or take those four kickers and try and come up with something? That's a really good question. And the advice in the book on this is, I mean, it's okay, but it's not ideal. Uh, What happened afterwards was Edwards did a really interesting series of threads on the forge where he talked about how he prepared for and ran his sorcerer games and these have been so profoundly influential on how i've I've prepared every campaign since then that I, i cannot overstate this so what he does is When he creates the premise for the game, he will come up with a a basic series of events or a series of NPCs and problems, and he'll he'll diagram them out or create a relationship map. But he'll, he'll create some backstory that goes with that and a few things that might happen. Then he'll get the players to create characters. At the same time as creating their kickers and their sorcerers, they'll also suggest some NPCs that are important to them. So what he'll then do is look at his relationship map and look at NPCs in that relationship map that he can replace with NPCs that the uh, the players have created. So that they're all connected to this. He'll look at how the kicker then interfaces with the events that he's come up with and perhaps you know, adjust and spin things a bit within the scenario or overall outline that he's, he's developed. So what this means is that he ends up with something that is unlike what any of the players would have come up with on their own, is unlike what he would have come up with on his own, but ends up being a synthesis of those things. Right. It sounds like it could be quite a challenging thing to do for a GM. Yeah, I think yeah, potentially quite a demanding task to sort of weave those threads together with what you've got, because those kickers are highly unpredictable. Yeah, but... It's very, very rewarding when you manage to pull it off. I've used this in an, any number of campaigns I've run, particularly short campaigns at the club. And it requires a little more work up front. But if you do all this work up front, it makes it much, much easier to run the ongoing game because you've got all that groundwork set up and you're re- just really keeping it ticking over at that stage. And also, if the players have got that degree of buy-in, if they've created all these elements and these are important to the players, then in theory, they should really engage with the premise and the action of the campaign. Let's take a look at what sorcerers can do in the game. They can contact, summon, bind, dismiss and punish demons, but they have no other magical abilities of their own. Their only vehicle for using magic, really, is through their demon. Uh, one thing I do quite like, which is echoed in uh, the push mechanic for pushing spells in Cthulhu 7th edition, that binding demons always succeeds. Yeah, what you're rolling for when you make a binding roll is not whether or not the, the, the sorcerer binds the demon to himself, but it's who the master is in that relationship. And the more powerful a demon is, the more dice it gets to roll against your binding roll. So if you try, you know, summoning and binding a fairly weak demon, then yes, you can probably control it. 
On the other hand, if you do it with something really powerful and you screw up the binding roll, all of a sudden you've got Stormbringer. <laughs> my master is my slave. <laughs> the humanity trait is put at risk through summoning demons, obviously. So for contacting and summoning and binding demons, they, they risk losing their humanity. And humanity can be regained through banishing demons, even if they're bound to other sorcerers. We've established what a sorcerer is, but what's a demon? Oh, they're the poor, victimised innocents that are just minding their own business and suddenly, bang, there's a sorcerer that comes up and binds your ass. Yeah, and each sorcerer starts play with a single demon. You don't have to, at this stage, roll to contact or summon this demon. You still roll to bind it, though. So you can start play with a really, really powerful demon. But as I mentioned before, depending on how that binding roll goes, you might not be the one wearing the pants in that relationship. Demons can be inconspicuous. They can be objects, parasites, passers or possessors. Each of them has a telltale, as we've previously said. And each of these these types of demons are very specifically defined within the game. Uh, so an inconspicuous demon is something that you just wouldn't notice. So, for example, the sorcerer might have a demon bound into their shadow or something like that. Maybe under certain light conditions you can see that the demon actually has its own eyes or something like that. Um, with an object, it is exactly that. So it could be something like Stormbringer, it could be something bound into a ring. It just appears to be a physical object. A parasite is something that the sorcerer brings into their own body or someone else's body. It doesn't possess the person, but it might sort of live in their blood or you know, take the place of an organ or something like that. You have passes, which can appear to be people or animals. Again, you know, if you spend too much time with them, you realise they're a bit wrong. And finally, you have possessors, which are exactly that. They, they possess people. So these demons keep themselves secret. They never willingly alert the world to their own true nature. And they are largely defined by their powers, which are chosen by the players. You can make your demon more powerful, but the more powerful you make it, the harder it is to control. So a powerful demon may end up being the master. And these powers are really quite powerful things. So they can be things like flight or teleportation. They can be things like you know, massive strength, uh, the ability to make organic matter decay, the ability to throw fire, psychic powers. They can use these powers themselves or they can convey them to another party. And this is something you define. So you could end up with, you know, say, an object demon that makes you superhumanly strong and gives you enhanced senses and allows you to read people's minds. Or you could have this vicious attack dog that you know, looks ordinary but every now and then can swell up to ten times its size and just swallow someone whole. One thing I do like about these is that demons aren't just two-dimensional power traits that you grab and then attach to your character sheet. That each one of them has a desire and a need, which usually comes up and bites you on the ass pretty regularly. So desire is a pattern of behaviour, such as creating chaos, accumulating knowledge or seeking gratification. Whereas a need is something the demon must have, or it weakens, poor little thing, and starts rebelling. Now, his needs might include things like blood, sacrifice, people's secrets, or just something like having its ears scratched. One tip that I would offer that isn't in the rules is that 
instead of the GM playing all the demons, which is the default assumption in the rules, that the players take on each other's demons. Because Sorcerer is not a game that lends itself to traditional party play. So there may be times at which one or more players is just sitting to one side, watching someone else's scene. Mm. Whereas if they are playing the other character's demon in that scene, and playing up the needs and desires and causing trouble, you know, helping when they want to or when they're forced to, but you know, generally being pains in the arse, then that not only keeps that player engaged, but it makes life a bit easier for the GM because they can carry on playing the NPCs and everything else in that scene, but still rely on that demon causing trouble. So you just highlighted a point there. Because it's a very character-driven game, and what would you say, four players is a good number? Yeah, I've never run it with more than four. So uh, four? I, I, I'd say three is ideal. Oh, three, okay. Okay, right, three is ideal. Because it's one of those games, and we see this quite a lot with games which are very character-driven, and it tends to kind of go around the table, okay, this is your scene, this is your scene, and play devil's advocate everybody else is sort of sat there waiting for their go whereas a more traditional game would be at dnd call of cthulhu or whatever where the characters tend towards acting more as a party is more sort of inclusive of everybody at the table i'd say with sorcery it can go in the direction you just said but there are ways of mitigating this for a start if the gm has woven together all the backstories into his own backstory and you know it has, has made sure that the kickers bring the characters into contact with each other if the npcs there that are important to the characters are shared to some extent then they have more reason to interact and this will bring them into each other's scenes more it still doesn't necessarily lend itself to traditional party play very often but it means that you're not necessarily having a whole bunch of isolated scenes and the other thing that makes a huge difference there mechanically it is really, really, really difficult to contact and summon demons in this game. If your sorcerer just decides on a whim, oh, I need an even a relatively weak demon to help with such and such a thing. Yeah, say they've decided they're going to break into a bank and they need to summon a demon that is capable of pulling the door of the, the bank vault open. They are not going to be able to do that spontaneously. Right. It requires preparation. It but one thing that can really, really help with that is sorcerers working together. And so as a result, you may end up with sorcerers forming cabals and cults and covens and you're actually assisting each other when it comes to that heavy lifting. Now let's take a look at the resolution mechanics behind Sorcerer. So the dice mechanics are reasonably straightforward. One has the various traits that we, we mentioned earlier and you end up with a pool of d10s. So you roll your fistful of d10s against the opposition, and the two sets of results are compared, and the person with the higher success is the winner. With the, uh, with the, with the highest die. So out of that pool. Yeah. So let's say that you know, my highest die is a 9, your highest die is a 7. That means I've won. And then you can gain more successes. So if my highest die was a seven and you had two nines and an eight, you'd have three successes against yeah. me. So it gives a degree of success. And if you have dice at the top of the chain, so you both roll two tens, then they both cancel out until you find one that has a higher dice than the other. 
Yeah. So this is much like when we talked about White Wolf. This isn't a game that demands a lot of maths in the workings of it and is reasonably straightforward to use at the table. And sometimes there are ongoing conflicts where that, as I just described, those three successes that Scott got against me, if it was a kind of ongoing conflict, then he could use those against me in the next round and roll three additional dice in his next conflict with me. Where that really tends to come into play most is in combat. Because combat in this, unlike, say, something like Cold City or Hot War, is not resolved with a single roll. You do have round by round, and you're chipping away at the other person's stamina. It can be used in other, more subtle ways. The example I always use, uh, which I think a lot of players, again, I've seen really struggle with at the table, is learning how to play to your strengths. So let's say that your character wants to take out a security guard, but your character doesn't have much in the way of stamina. They're much more of a talky character. You know that you're not going to be able to talk your way into this situation that you do need to just smack him over the back of the head. What you can do is perhaps start out with a will roll so that you're trying to get him off guard. You're trying to talk him you know, around, confuse him a bit, get him off balance, maybe misdirect him a bit so he's looking away from you when you get the crowbar ready. So you make that will roll, and you know, let's say you get three successes there. Then you've got three bonus dice you can use on your stamina roll when you clock him over the back of the head. And chaining these conflicts together is a really, really important part of Sorcerer. And it takes a long time for people to get used to that in play. Mm. And now we take a look at how does Sorcerer play? So the creation of the game, as we've said, is very collaborative, or at least partly collaborative. The GM has a thing called a one-sheet. A pitch document outlines the premise for the game. Now, this whole process can be done as a group exercise and defines the general premise for the game. It defines what sorcerers are, what demons are in your particular game, what humanity means in your particular game. So each of these terms is customizable by the group at the table. In mechanics, it has the same effect, but in its kind of outward appearance and flavor, it can change to suit your requirements. We've talked about sorcerers and demons as if we know what they mean. But these are very, very fluid concepts in the game. So a sorcerer isn't necessarily someone in a robe who carries out blood rituals in the midst of night to bring forth horrors. A demon isn't necessarily a creature from the pits of hell. You can redefine these things in whatever way you want. For example, I ran a game which was all about mad science. So sorcerers in it were mad scientists. The summoning and binding process was all about creating these products of mad science, about researching them, about bringing them into fruition and about controlling them. And humanity was basically how mad they got driven in the process. The demons in it were just creations for example, one of them actually ended up being a, a nuclear reactor in the game. You know, a, a mobile nuclear reactor that was sentient and liked telling stories to children. But it was a nuclear reactor. The players also come up with their backstories and their kickers, and it's helpful to create NPCs and relationships collaboratively at this stage. Again, it helps with the kind of interweaving that um, you already mentioned, Scott. And the advice in the book is for the GM to use things called bangs 
keep play moving. Now, we have touched on this before, but I think because this is the game where we see these two terms originate from, kickers and bangs. What are they and what's the difference? So we've already discussed what kickers are. They're this thing that the player makes up that their character is tied up in at the very start of the game in the first scene and it's something the player is invested in. They may not know where it's going to go or how it's explained or how it's going to be resolved. Indeed, they shouldn't really. That's what a kicker is. It does indeed kick you into action. Oh, yeah, exactly. Indeed. Whereas a bang comes from the GM, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the biggest difference for a start. The GM authors the bangs. A bang specifically is an event that the GM throws into play, like a grenade with a bang, that then creates a problem that the players can't ignore, but which doesn't have a prescribed solution. Something like... Guy walks into a bar with a Tommy gun. Yeah, I mean, that kind of thing. It is a problem. It does require a solution. It's difficult to ignore. And, yeah, I mean, you could negotiate with him. You could shoot him. You could run away. But it requires you to take some kind of action. I mean, that's a very, very simple form of a bang, but it is a bang. As a GM, you probably use bangs already. You just don't call them that. So they're kind of beats in the scenario. I think of them as things that I have a list of them in my scenario that if the players aren't very proactive, if they're just doodling around and they're not really getting on with anything or they're kind of avoiding what I want them to, to go and look at, then I could put a bang in that puts the action back in their face and gets the, the game going again if it was, um, you know, if it was getting a bit low in energy. Yeah, I mean, that's really the point of them, that um, the GM doesn't throw these bangs in willy-nilly. They are there to keep the pace going. The GM's role in the game is meant to be fairly reactive, um, allowing players to explore their character's story. I mean, they create hard situations to challenge the sorcerer, exploring the theme of what they will do to get what they want. Um, the general idea, though, is to play the sorcerer's story through to the end, uh, whether this is redemptive, self-destructive, triumphing over an adversity, or something else. So this is sort of what we said about the game goes through to the resolution of that kicker. At that point, it's like that story arc has kind of been resolved. I mean, yeah. another one might have been opened up, or it might be that the character dies at that point, perhaps even. If the character survives and you don't retire them, the option in the game is that you rewrite the character sheet at that stage and then come up with a new kicker, and then their new story arc begins. So that would be kind of the end of Buffy Season 5. Hmm, yes. Um, with the, whole, the end of that whole kind of story arc. And then start of series six, she's coming back from the dead. She's almost like a new character, or the same character, but with some very different aspects to her. Yeah, I mean, she's, like she's, she's definitely got a brand new kicker at that stage. Yeah. Now, as you might imagine, a big part of, of Sorcerer involves dealing with demons. And as we've mentioned, this is a very, very difficult thing to do. One problem I found with Sorcerer, and th this is has proved a bit of a source of frustration to almost everyone I've played it with, is when this whole process fails, it tends to feel very anticlimactic, that you have this, you know, perhaps big build-up where you are doing all this preparation, you're role-playing this. So, I mean, for example, this was a game you played, Matt, uh, the Cthulhu Noir one. Mm -hmm. So it was a sort of 1940s uh, Hollywood noir, but with a, a mythos edge to the whole thing, mythos magic mixed in. And 
James Mullen was playing with us. At some point, he decided that he was going to create this new demon. His character's father had been killed bloodily, and so she managed to get hold of the the father's corpse. She was going to try making an object demon by cutting her father's face off and then just turning it into a mask and, and binding a demon into the mask and creating this thing. He went through all the preparation, he went through the role-playing, did the contacting, you know, got a group of people together, did this this grand ritual to do so. Then it came up to the big binding role, and it failed. And it was, okay. Um, and in the rules, there is no consequence, there is nothing that happens when you fail, it just doesn't work. It's not like with the binding role where you know the balance of power has changed or something it's not that it goes horribly wrong and you bring forth an out of control demon oh. it just you know if and when i run sorcerer again i'm going to try to come up with some house rules to deal with that because for such a big thing for such an important thing in the game it should be memorable when that goes wrong rather than just you know a, a, an empty echo of what the game should be yeah it does seem a bit odd that binding roles automatically succeed but it's then establishing balance of power but summoning roles themselves have the ability to just go Pfft. yeah so i think we're all very familiar with the you know indie games movement but this was one from the early days of it and it does feel when you read it again as something of an intermediate step between the game designs of the 1990s and the indie games that we see in the 21st century. Some of the mechanics feel a bit, maybe a bit clunky by today's standards. And there's a granularity to the resolution mechanics that can bog down a bit, particularly in combat. Now, also considering how powerful Sorcerer is meant to be, it seems pretty easy to fail if you're not using like the, the demon's powers. Um, yeah. Which... You know, you're supposed to be these, well, not maybe all powerful characters, but very powerful sorcerers. Yeah, um, and I, I've certainly seen this wrong for people. So, for example, I ran a campaign at the club uh, using Dictionary of Moo, which I think we may talk about in a moment. But it's a supplement that Judd Kalman wrote for, for Sorcerer. That's absolutely amazing. We had one of the players who just decided for his first conflict, that because his character was a sorcerer, he must be the sort of this ultimate badass-type character. And you know, without using his demon's powers, basically went into a one-on-one -on -one combat with a powerful warlord. Because, you know, obviously I'll be able to beat him. And he got the shit kicked out of him in about two rounds. And felt really, really frustrated by this. And so, yeah, I think you have to be very careful with setting the expectations with this and, and make sure that people understand what kind of game they're playing. That, you know, sorcerers are really powerful in that they can summon and bind demons. That's what makes them powerful. You take that away from them and they're ordinary people. I've played Sorcerer, but I've not played it very much. On the one hand, it seems like an almost infinitely variable and customizable game. We've said about how you can customise what demons are, what sorcerers are, what humanity means, and so on. But on the other hand, it seems almost a very prescriptive game, a very a limiting game in, in what you can actually do as characters and how you have to play it. Where would you say it sits on that? I, I'd say it shares that in common with a lot of indie games that came out of the Forge, in that you can look at it as being limited 
or you can look at it as being focused, that it is fundamentally about trying to tell one kind of story, a story about Faustian bargains and dysfunctional relationships. It's about this quest for power. It's about people who are driven and will do anything to gain what they want, even if that means risking their own souls. Right. And... Yeah, if you are playing that kind of game, if you buy into that concept, then Sorcerer is that game. I, th- I it, think that's yeah. perhaps at the, at the heart of what we discussed earlier, Scott, in the difficulty of people buying into what the game's about and yeah. making a character. Because when we talk about, let's say, Call of Cthulhu, what's Call of Cthulhu about? It, you know, in a nutshell, it's about facing off against these great powers that that are beyond mankind. I don't know how to put it in a nutshell, really. But that doesn't really define the game. That You know, your your individual game of Call of Cthulhu could be kind of anything. So that, that elevator pitch as to what the game's about, I'm used to kind of hearing that, but not really having to necessarily take it on board that much when I make my character. Yeah, I, I think a, a more interesting parallel in that respect is possibly some of the White Wolf games. Say, for example, we look at Vampire. It's this game of personal horror that you've been turned into a monster, but you're trying to hold on to your humanity. How will you balance surviving in this very sort of strange new political world with the requirements of trying to hold on to what you once were? In practice, though, the game doesn't necessarily do that much to force you to play like that, does it? In your experience, do most games of Vampire actually play out like that? Depends on a lot of factors, really. It depends on what type of game the GM wants to run, for one thing, and also then what the players want to do with their characters once they've got them established. By the book, um, there's a lot of setup that places emphasis on how vampiric society works in a city, like if you have like London by Night... You'll have lots of different characters with all their agendas and how they're related to other characters and what their goals are and so yeah, on and so but, forth. But, but this is setting, not mechanics. And I guess that's the difference. That I mean, in, in Vampire, you have the humanity mechanic, which you know, perhaps reinforces that to some degree. But there is maybe nothing else mechanically in the game that drives a style of play. Well, I think Matt's answered the question there. He said that it depends what the players want to do with their characters and what the GM wants to do with it his or her game right Mm, yes but with sorcerer that doesn't matter because the game is about this thing and the mechanics are very set up to do this thing and if you don't fit in with that like you've said people who don't actually get their head around that don't really fit into the game and and it runs much deeper than that because it's not just the mechanics supporting that, but it's the fundamental expectation that the players will drive the game. Mm. So it's not just relying on proactive characters, it's relying on proactive players. It's not the traditional idea of the GM coming along to tell their story and the players interacting with that. It's the GM providing support for the players' stories. Yeah, which is a pretty much a big role reversal on how a lot of traditional games work Mm. yeah but it's kind of almost disguised unless it's made really clear to you i think you sit down and you play it you know i sit down with three other people and scott running it i'm playing a role-playing game that's my expectation so i don't see that what you just said matt i don't see that it's a role-playing game in reverse it's almost like we've got four gems and Scott's the player. I don't know, that's not really a, an appropriate well, no, no, analogy. Not, but Not really a role-playing game reverse, but it's that normally players are sat there waiting for a GM to yeah, give yeah. a situation for them to react to. But they're not reactive. They are very much the the aggressor in, them, mm. in, a, in a kind of yeah. raw term. Very much the protagonist. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and I think that word 
is at the heart of what Sorcerer is, protagonist. It's weird. I mean, we're used to thinking of, of player characters in a lot of role-playing games as being protagonists. But in a lot of cases, I, I think you know, Call of Cthulhu is an interesting example here because we see in Lovecraft stories that a lot of his protagonists aren't really protagonists, that mm. they are reacting, sometimes almost passively. Sometimes as witnesses. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think there is sometimes an element of that in Call of Cthulhu, mm. that you are reacting to the things that are happening, that are being done to you. And I think in, in a lot of role-playing games, yeah. Yeah, yes. Sorcerer is not that game. Yeah. And now let's take a quick look at the supplements that have been published for Sorcerer. There are three main supplements written by Edwards. Uh, the first one being Sorcerer and Sword, uh, probably the most useful of the supplements and provides options for sword and sorcery games, as well as a good overview of the genre. Uh, it includes making packs with demons, using necromancy, fun for all the family, new combat options, and some solid advice on genre emulation. And I will suggest that this is um, a supplement that is probably worth picking up even if you don't play Sorcerer. And I've used the advice in there on structuring games and on genre emulation uh, for running Jaws of the Six Serpents and other games. Um, I, I think it is one of the best role-playing supplements I've ever read. Then there's The Sorcerer's Soul. This covers the use of relationship maps, something we've, we've talked about previously and something we've made use of in, in a variety of games, to construct scenarios there is more advice and options about humanity and advice on how you can blur the line between sorcerers and demons. And this also introduces angels, which, you know, that sounds fun and includes a few new scenarios. And then we have the weirdest of the three supplements, which is sex and sorcery. And this is about you know, incorporating adult or sexual subject matter in your games. We, we talked before about how we've you know, used the terms kickers and bangs fairly, fairly often, but maybe not acknowledge too much about where they came from. Similarly, we've talked about lines and veils before, and I think this is the book that introduced them. I mean, certainly there's a chapter on lines and veils in, in sex and sorcery. There is a very weird section in the middle which is about gendered stories, about what makes up a masculine story or a male story, what makes up a female story. It's maybe not as reductive or sexist as it sounds at first because it's not saying that those necessarily play to the gender of the players, but it's more a sort of way of, of looking at the tradition of the storytelling behind different types of stories. Personally, I don't find it particularly useful. I, I found it a mildly interesting read, but I could have done without it. And then there's some scenario and setting ideas in here as well, including a very, very weird sort of fantasy setting that involves sexual relations and power dynamics in an insectile society. There were also a run of mini-supplements that Ron Edwards allowed people to write and release official supplements as long as they passed his editorial approval. The authors were responsible for layout and art, but they kept all the profits. These started in, I think, 2001, 2002. And then around 2003, Chaosium started doing something a bit similar, but I think this was parallel evolution, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think the whole print-on-demand thing came along and Chaosium saw that, you know, they can go down and get, you know, a hundred or a couple of hundred copies of something printed off directly and sell them direct to the public. Um, so it was, it was a fairly uh, low-risk venture for getting work out into the, into the marketplace. 
But I think something similar came out of both of them, both the Chaosium monographs and these the Sorcerer mini supplements, in that they they helped embolden new writers. They gave people a chance to you know, dip their toe in the water, you know, publish hmm. at a fairly low risk, and with a fairly low barrier to entry, their own role-playing supplement. And you know, fundamentally, this is how you got started, Paul. Yeah, sure, with uh, Gatsby and the Great Race. Yeah, yeah. that was the moolah. There are a number of supplements that have been published for Sorcerer, but there is one I want to highlight. I mentioned a little while ago the Dictionary of Moo by Judd Kalman. I, I don't know if this is still in print. If it is, you really should get hold of a copy. I mean, this is a sort of sword and sandals type thing set on dead Mars, or at least, no, a world called Mard, which may or may not be the remains of our Mars. And it is about... Dealing with the ghosts of the past, it's, it's influenced by Edgar Rice Burroughs, it's influenced by the Old Testament, and it, it's a really innovative supplement. It's written in the style of a dictionary, so the world is spelled out by all these dictionary entries that define all the different terms in there. And the idea is that your character advances in it by writing their own dictionary entries. Uh, so, yeah, if you get a chance to, to buy it, play it, run it, read it, whatever, get hold of it. Now let's just take a look at our experiences of playing Sorcerer. I think the big one for me was one that Scott's already mentioned, which was when it was played at the MKRPG Club, where we used the Cthulhu Mythos as the source of the various demons in, in the world, set amongst a very... Hollywood noir backdrop. The one thing that has constantly stayed with me from that game is how I hate the fucking mechanics that one die can succeed over ten times the opposition. That, effectively, a god can't kick down a door. Who was this, Matt? Guess who was rolling that dice. No, no, who was the god? Oh, the god was the king in yellow. <laughs> it, couldn't, <laughs> so, it couldn't kick down a door. Was it like, like the doors to hell? No, it was a door to an apartment. Yeah, what, in a hotel block. There was a human sorcerer on the other side trying to hold the door shut. No, he was asleep. He didn't even know we were there. No, no, no. There, there was active opposition because he only rolled when there's active opposition. Oh, okay. I thought it was Mark Kerr was just sat in another room and he hadn't heard us knock the door. You said, oh, no. pick up this one dice of cursory no, opposition. No, there, no, there, there, there was. <laughs> so this someone, human there was sorcerer, Scott, is, was he like using his demonic power to hold the door shut? No. No, he was just a guy. In the hotel room, holding the door shut, and the king in yellow was on the other side and could get in. Yeah. This but, is why I hate the mechanics in this game so but, much. But, Matt, I mean, <laughs> it, fundamentally it boils down to probability. You might as well say that you don't like Call of Cthulhu because you can roll double zeros in it. Yeah, I frequently roll double zeros. <laughs> well, do you, do you hate Call of Cthulhu as a result? No, because I don't roll double zeros that many times. <laughs> <laughs> but this only happened once in this game. Oh, it, it just seemed that... No, wait a minute, wait a minute. If the King in Yellow was on one side of the door and some dude was on the other, I can't remember the stats out of the book off the top of my head. Would there even be a roll? No. If there's a god on one side of the door? It depends how tough the god is. He's a pretty lame-ass god if he can't push an apartment door open. Oh, Matt stashed him up. I gave him the, the god ten dice, which was pretty tough in Sorcerer terms, and well, it still yeah. failed. okay. But if it had been pretty tough in Call of Cthulhu, it wouldn't have failed. Yeah. So the, so the, I'm just saying the comparison doesn't stand up. Oh, I'm, I'm not sure so about if, that. It, it, it wouldn't have been the grounds for an opposed role. Yeah, it's a door. God, door. God wins. Move on. <laughs> well, it wasn't the door. It was the fact that there was human opposition to it. 
But yes, I mean, this is the thing in Sorcerer and in Cold City and in Hot War and in any other game, really, where you've got opposed roles, which is that there is always a chance that the person with the fewest amount of dice, but the smaller dice pool, there is always a very small chance that they will win. Normally when it's you have the smaller dice pool, we were joking throughout the whole game that you were going to win, because you normally did. (laughs) So it's not so much David and Goliath, it's more Mark Kerr and the King in Yellow. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That aside... What what do you make of your experiences of actually playing Sorcerer? Matt can't I mean, put that aside. I, no. But, but, but I, I remember, I mean, we, we talked about people having a lot of trouble buying into the premise of it. And I remember, yes, I the, remember the, that you, you and Mark, you, you were completely blind to it. It didn't matter what I did. Mm-hmm. You could not buy into the idea of being the protagonist in this game. Everything you did was reactive. Yeah, I, 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 J- was... J- James was playing a very proactive character. And you two were along for the ride. And I think we also had one uh, one player that pretty much walked out before the game even started on a yeah. similar on similar grounds. Yeah, well, that that, that was for different reasons, but yeah, did, yeah, it, did it's, Scott piss someone off again? I did because <laughs> I, yeah, we had. This is what I was saying you, before you don't have about to wanting here, Scott. If you don't want. Now, this is what I was saying before about wanting limited backstory so that I knew what was important. I told the player to write me three paragraphs we, we of We guessed there was a backstory to this backstory. <laughs> and they wrote me three pages of backstory. Didn't send it to me in advance and turned up in the first session and said, right, here's the bit. And I said, well, for a start, I don't have time to read all this now. And secondly, you know, th- this isn't what I asked for. I wanted to know what was important for your character. Can you just pick out three things from this backstory that's important? And he said no and walked out. But yeah, it's because it was such a different game to get to grips to that I certainly hadn't played anything like it before. It was honestly a real struggle. Mm. I mean, it paid off. I really enjoyed the end of the game, but it was a it was a slog getting there because yeah. it was so different. But yeah, I mean, it was it was even from the the outset. I mean, trying to get you and Mark to create characters who had actually summoned their demons in the first place. I went through so many options with you, and in the end, you still... I ended up having to give up because you both ended up choosing characters who had just stumbled across their demons and didn't understand what they were. Yeah, I think that can be difficult, coming up with a very active character from the outset. I I find that difficult sometimes. I think an easier journey for me is to start off playing a fairly reactive character get into the story and then as I kind of get my head around what my character's like then it, I take on a more sort of proactive role and find my feet with it and what the world's like and get into the shoes of my character you know then then I can kind of drive it forward but trying to do that from a blank sheet from the outset without having played the game yet I find that quite difficult do you think something like the kicker would help you with that um yeah, maybe. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It was certainly one of the biggest problems for me because it was trying to work out, well, what the hell do I do? Is this going to fit with the game that you've got written? I, just literally having so much of a blank sheet was was intimidating. But mm. kind of oddly enough, when you play Call of Cthulhu, you tend to play very proactive characters. Normally, though, it's the situation has presented itself to me first rather than me create the situation. Right. So you're bouncing against it, aren't you? Yeah, I can react to something far better than just as a player go, uh, I think something up. But, yeah, but, I, I but, agree. But as a GM, you know, you don't have problems kind of getting into that mindset and being proactive and bringing problems to the players. No, because it normally takes me several months of working them out before I go to the table. Yeah, okay. you've got stuff there when you sit down as GM at the start. You've got a bunch of stuff, even if it's just a bunch of bullet points, you've got stuff there to present to the players. 
even with sorcery, you, I mean, as you describe yeah. it, you've got stuff there. You integrate what the players give you as their kickers. Like like we said, with bangs, you've got stuff you're going to present to the players if, if nothing much is happening. Yeah, whereas a player, if you're just asking them this, um, in a character gen session to, right, think of a kicker, that will send me into a long think about what the hell's gonna t- I'm going to do. And that can take weeks or months for me to come up with something like that. When we did the character creation for this, you know, everyone had a week to do it. Hmm. Um, that seems fair enough. Yeah, I, I would have thought so. I, I, you know, for something, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't think I'm exceptional when it comes to stuff like this. But I think I can, you know, certainly come up with a kicker and a proactive character within a week. I, I had the rare experience of actually playing Sorcerer recently. Good friend of the good friend Steve Ellis ran it last year at my request, and and we played it with our friends uh, Lynn, John, and Lena, and. He ran um, a very non-supernatural game. Yeah, it was another Hollywood noir game, but with no supernatural elements. That we were all people involved with you know, sort of the world of, of Kenneth Angus' Hollywood Babylon. That it was all about the corruption that lay under the surface in Hollywood. And that the demons in it represented things like the, the power we wielded within the studio system and, and you know, the authority we could bring to bear. I, I don't know. I, I, I had to then create a sorcerer that you know, had, had specifically summoned a demon in this case. His demon was a, a young starlet uh, who he'd sort of brought under his wing, who he was effectively acting as a pimp in exchange for um, keeping her supplied with drugs. I, I don't know. I found that really, really easy to, to actually get into. Mm. Yeah, I think if you're given a premise that you can kind of buy into fairly readily and it sort of sparks your imagination, then that's good. Otherwise... I guess what you're doing in that week that you said you were giving the players to come up with a kicker and a, and a character is almost as a player. I think if you approach it, Matt, that it's almost like I'm going to go and join Scott Sorcerer game. But rather than think of myself as a player, I think I'm almost like a GM role. Mm. I've kind of got to come up with a a character and almost come up like a, with a scenario for that character. Or at least a scenario hook. Yeah, um, you, you, don't need starting... to, you don't need to know what's going on beyond that opening scene. You just no, no, not a future, not, not what's happening in the future, but the scenario as it is at the moment for that character, you know, their background, their, the people they know, um, their situation, like they've got this starlet that they've kind of taken under the wing and block all that out is, is more than just coming up with a character concept as one would traditionally in a role-playing game. I'd come up with my character. I might think of, like, one or two relatives or something, but generally I'd just come up with the character. In this, it's much more coming up with a character and their immediate world and their, the people they know and, and so on. It's much more than that. But you still need to come up with a kicker. And, and again, I found that a fairly easy thing to do. with. I mean, with this character, he was basically a struggling screenwriter. I decided to rip off Barton Fink to a large extent. And that he was a former New York playwright who'd ended up in Hollywood, thought that he was going to hit the big time because he was such a good writer, and had just ended up failing and failing and failing. He'd been trying to get an adaptation made of his, his big play in New York. He'd written it up as a screenplay and kept trying to get the studios to make it and kept failing and his kicker was that he'd gone off to the the cinema one night and basically seen his script made under a different name and yeah I mean, they, this sort of set into motion a series of events that ended in bloody tragedy and i had a great time playing it mm. the good friends of jackson elias now have a patreon page think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show 
The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. Now it's that time in the show when we say a big thanks to all the people who have backed us via Patreon. We have a Patreon scheme and we welcome people to back us on there. And very soon we'll be bringing out the new Blasphemous Tome, as we mentioned earlier in the show, issue three. And that will be going out to all our backers. We do want to say thank you to each and every one of you who give us money because this money pays for our our running costs, our upkeep, basically makes the podcast possible. So, yes, thank you. And we have a few new people to thank as well. Indeed, and our first thanks go out to James Harrison. So, thank you very much, James. Thank you, James. Yes, thank you, James. And also, thanks to Chris Stevens. Yes, thank you very much, Chris. Indeed, thanks, Chris. And now we leap up to the $5 level. And those of you who are regular listeners to the show have probably clenched at this stage. I'm not going to say what you've clenched, but probably everything. Ew. (laughs) We have a few new $5 backers, and the first one is a big thanks to... Matt Young. Thank you, Matt. Hey, Matt, you've got a great name there. Thank you, Matt. So now let's have a look at what's being said on social media. We had a post on Facebook uh, from Jim Delisio, which, yeah, I, I found rather interesting. He said, I had the same concern saying the name Shubnigurath in games that I run, especially in public games. I just convert the er to an apostrophe when I pronounce the name Shubnigath. And, yeah, I, I think that is a fairly simple and elegant solution. We see this over and over again in Lovecraft, that we see alternate spellings and pronunciations of these names anyway. So I think changing and, and shaking up the, the pronunciation of Shubnigrath seems, yeah, ideal. Makes me wonder what the true name of Yohannathle would have been. Something that sounds like a wet sneeze. <laughs> over on G+, Trevor Hurst says, Great episode! Hey, thanks Trevor. Lots of inspirational fodder this week. Now... Back to thinking about what the texture and colour of the milk of Shubnigarath might be like. Any suggestions, folks? Lemsip that we had just before we came on air. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's wearing off. I'm not sure it did any good. (laughs) Killed my taste buds, I know that. But uh, yeah, I think the milk should be a feast for all the senses. That it should be so. When I responded to his post, I suggested that it might be like certain fermented foodstuffs, where it is initially repellent, but then you acquire a taste for it. But it's like that for all the senses. That you know, perhaps looks wrong when you look at it, but afterwards, yeah, perhaps perhaps it looks quite attractive. That the first time it's on your skin, it's cold and clammy and sticky and repellent, and after that, you just want to rub it in. You just want to smear it all over your form. It's like durian juice. Yeah, something like that. Maybe, mm. maybe, maybe it smells slightly better. <laughs> and also on G Plus, Justin Lowmaster says, "Ah, he has some some uh, words to say about the Bible because we got into uh, what did we get into? <laughs> well, we we talked about the fact that there was no." 
correlation oh, yeah. in the Bible between the symbolism oh. of the goat and Satan. Now, uh, Justin informs us, nothing in the Bible says Satan is an evil goatee Mr. Tumnus. Well, okay. <laughs> um, we've got a snake and a lion seeking to devour and an angel of light, but no goats. The only place I can think of as goats being bad in the Bible is in the sheep and the goats. According to a Christian pastor, I asked, in the ancient Near East, sheep and goats were really hard to tell apart. Sheep are the followers of Jesus, and goats maybe looked like it, but weren't. Yeah, so I guess the sheep we're used to now are very domesticated things. Back then, they weren't that differentiated from goats. Yeah, and he wraps it up with another example, says, There was also the scapegoat, a goat onto which the sins of the community were put, and they sent, then sent the goat out into the wilderness. Naturally, the goat wasn't at fault in the same way that Christ died for our sins, though the scapegoat wasn't killed. But maybe that's where Satan as a goat came from. I, I think that's an interesting idea. I mean, I'm not enough of a biblical scholar to, to really have a, an informed opinion on that, but it certainly sounds plausible. I just like the idea of this cursed goat going from town to town to town to town, being pushed on, accumulating more and more sin as it goes. There's oh, a scenario yeah. in that. Yeah. I mean, if we go back to biblical origins, I mean, there, there are certain characters who uh, you know, may, we, we may take as almost human analogues of that. I mean, you, you could almost perhaps do something with Cain ending up in the same position and, you know, still alive, wandering around from place to place, still accumulating all these sins, almost acting as an involuntary sin eater and just leaving this, this wake of corruption and degradation behind him. Rather than going making vampires every so often like he does in Masquerade. Yes. Yeah. Possibly play Henry Rollins. Yep. Yeah, or, or alternatively, turning up in the occasional Carl Edward Wagner story. So if you want to join us on social media, you can find us on Google+, Facebook and Twitter. And there are links to each of these on our website. And our website is blasphemoustomes.com. We also appreciate reviews on iTunes, DriveThruRPG and anywhere else that discusses podcasts. Then to wrap things up, what are our final thoughts on Sorcerer? Reading through it this week, I think it's an interesting book to read. Whether you're going to play it or not, it has a lot of interesting things to say about one man's take on role-playing games and his vision of role-playing games and a way of playing them. And I think it's, a, it's an interesting document about that. So I'm, I'm going to you know, read it again in more depth. And particularly also the supplements, because he was very keen that each of the supplements shouldn't just be some colour and, and so on. They should actually present something that the core book really didn't present. Yeah, and I think he succeeded on that front. I mean, the, the supplements for Sorcerer, I'm lukewarm about sex and sorcery, but I think Sorcerer and Sword in particular is just amazing. And Sorcerer's Soul is certainly has, has been very influential on me. And we've been talking during the, the thoughts for this episode and and some of those alongside his article is his appendix in in the book about does system matter those could well provide us for a springboard onto a whole nother episode yeah i think so you know certainly the idea of what the effect of system is on play is, is a huge topic and i think it's, it's probably something we could have an interesting discussion mm. about so let, let's pencil that one in and would we play the game I think this has actually helped me see what the game is about and would make it easier for me to play the game. 
Because I think that that issue we talked about of coming to it with the expectations of a regular role-playing game is a problem. Unless you address that and have it highlighted to you very clearly, then it can be a stumbling block. So I think now that we've done this, I'd be interested to give the game another shot, perhaps. I'm not sure it's a game that greatly appeals to me, having said that, but it it interests me. I'm not sure I'm particularly driven to play it given the, the driving forces of the game. Yeah, it's it's not one I'd go out of my way to play again, I must admit. Like I said before, I don't particularly like the mechanics. The, the setup for the game, otherwise, I enjoy. I like how it presents the idea of what demons are, how they can be varied, and how you can play around with the setting in lots of different ways to create many very different flavours of games. I just wish that there was some other mechanics for it, and that, likewise before, that as we described, that there can be a very anticlimactic feel that you've put a lot of effort into setting something up and it just doesn't work. But, I mean, you, you talk about that. I mean, you've played Hot War and Cold City. Do you feel the same way about those? No, because that has a more intricate setting in my mind. It's got more of a canvas. It's got more of elements that you can bounce off against. This just presents that you are individuals out there in an undefined world, or at least one that hasn't been defined by a GM or um, in a book already. But your but, complaint was specifically about the mechanics. and But that complaint applies just as much to the mechanics of Hot War. It it, hand, it can do, I just haven't had that experience as badly in Cold City or Hot War. Okay, so it's that one experience rather than the mechanics, then? Probably, yeah. It was a big taint for me. Okay. Personally, I mean, Sorcerer is one of my favourite games. I, it's showing its age, it's a bit clunky in places. Things like the combat system in it, I find a bit tedious at times, and it can get a bit fiddly to run. We, we've talked a lot about how... It can be difficult to buy into it as a player. It is also quite a difficult game to GM. You have to do quite a lot of work. We talked about setting up that one sheet ahead of time, getting the buy-in from the players, all that stitching together of stuff, but also getting into the right mindset to run it. And the, the mechanics have a lot of moving parts. I mean, it's all coherent. The mechanics all follow the same basic patterns. It's not like there are kind of bizarre, intricate subsystems. It's just applications of the same things over and over again. But sometimes it can feel a bit overwhelming. And, you know, I've run a bunch of short campaigns of it over with, with gaps between. And every time I come to it, there is this feeling of initially being a bit overwhelmed just getting my head around all of it ahead of time. But that said, I mean... Every time I've run it, I've had an absolute blast doing so. I've really enjoyed playing it. And I think it does things that no other game I've played do. And I, I really like it for that. Well, that wraps up our discussion of Sorcerer by Ron Edwards. And there'll be show notes on the website at blasphemoustomes.com. So until next time, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.